Please open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We'll continue our study with John's gospel. This morning, we'll look at one of the great I am statements of our Lord found in John's gospel. I am the light of the world. We're looking at verses 12 to 20. John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20. We'll begin by reading them. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we will dive into our study. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the wonders of your son in this text, how fearlessly he fought his foes, how boldly he proclaimed the truth, how freely he invited any and all to follow him. We pray that you would give us the faith to see him as he is, as you have testified him to be, to guard us from the cynical skepticism of the Pharisees. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'll remind you of what we studied last week and what I argued, that the section that is in nearly all of your Bibles bracketed off, known as the uh, adulterous woman, does not belong here in John's Gospel. If you want to listen to the discussion on that, you can go to last week's message or even more deeply, the ABF. And the reason why I think that's significant is I believe Jesus here in 8.12 picks up perfectly, responds perfectly to what we left off with. So let's go back to the end of chapter 7. I'm arguing, in other words, that 8.12 should be the next verse after 7.52. So let's go all the way back to 7.45 and read. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Then I'm arguing the very next verse should be, and again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, setting our context here, when does this take place? 
I'm arguing this takes place on the last day of the feast, the great day, all the way back in 737. In other words, remember the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles set up in the Old Testament is a harvest festival. It's eight days long, seven days of the feast itself with an eighth great solemn day. And John sets that eighth day, that solemn day, as when these events happen. I believe that all the way through the rest of chapter 8, all the way through verse 59, jump all the way to the end of verse of chapter 8, um, 58 and 59, it crescendos here. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I'm arguing that all the way from 737 through there is that one great high feast day, the Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths, again, commemorating God's provision of Israel in the wilderness. It's a look back at his past provision. It's a celebration of his present provision, and it's a looking forward of his future provision. And Jesus has already referenced living waters. And you remember that in the wilderness, Moses on multiple occasions would strike a rock. God provided miraculous water for the people in the wilderness. Well, again, these connections to light, a pillar of fire led them by night, makes a connection to the Feast of Booths as well. So when? Last day of the feast, the great day. Who? Who's Jesus talking to? It starts with, he said to them, Well, I believe he's answering or speaking to the crowd and the Pharisees. Both the crowd and the Pharisees have brought up the issue of Galilee being a stumbling block for them. We saw the Pharisees say it, but look back a little further in verse 42 of chapter 7. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They're tripping up over Jesus being from Galilee. He's most recently from Galilee. That doesn't mean that's where he's born. And so both the crowd and the Pharisees bring up this issue of Galilee. And we know he's also talking to the Pharisees because they respond to him. Look at verse 13. The Pharisees said to him. So I believe Jesus is speaking to the crowd and the Pharisees. Um, And then we get to the what. So the when, last day, great day of the Feast of Booths. The who, Jesus speaks to the crowd and the Pharisees. What, again, Jesus spoke to them saying. And this is a great statement. And if you want to think of it, you can break it down into a statement of identity, statement referencing a text, and a statement of effect. So look at first the statement of identity. I am the light of the world. Now John's gospel famously has Jesus a number of times, seven or eight times, make these I am declarations. This is the second one we've seen. The first, back in chapter 6, 51, Jesus said, I am the bread come down from heaven. Here, I am the light of the world. So this is starting with a declaration of who he is. And it's obviously a metaphor. It's obviously a metaphor. But it's a metaphor that's been used in John since the very first chapter. Turn back to chapter 1. This metaphor of light and Jesus as light was introduced by John in the opening verses of his gospel. Look at 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. One nine, the true light, which gives life to, light to everyone, is coming into the world. We know in chapter 3, we're told this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light. So here Jesus owns this metaphor, and we've got to consider what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is light? 
Now we know if his glory were not veiled, it would mean he's luminescent, but I don't think that's the fundamental notion here. On the Mount of Transfiguration, yes, Jesus glowed brightly, but that's not, I think, the first sense of the meaning of light. What does it mean that Jesus is light? Well, let's consider a couple things in a moment, but before we do, and I think what it means that Jesus is light is seen clearly in the effect that light has for those who follow him, we've got to understand that Jesus is referencing a text. So we go from identity, I am, to the text. And as you turn, turn to Isaiah 9. And consider that Jesus' statement of identity is both exclusive and inclusive. He's not a light, he's the light, but he's not the light of a select few, but he's the light of the world. So in the one sense, Jesus claims a unique lightness. He's not one of many lights, he is the light, but he's the light for all people, not just Jews or Greeks, but for the world. So let's go to Isaiah 9, which is what I believe Jesus is referencing. Verses 1 through 2. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness on them has light Shown. Now, the, the verbal link here is Jesus saying, The one who follows him will not walk in darkness. And here, this light shines upon a people who have walked in darkness. But what's notable is this singles out what region? Galilee. So read the end of seven right into this. Search and see, does any prophet come from Galilee? Well, well yes, there's this one in Isaiah 9, isn't there? Who is this one? If you keep reading, um, jump down to verse 6, a very familiar text. Unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. I believe this is describing the great light for the nations that comes from Galilee. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So not only then does Jesus make a bold declaration about himself, does he not? He reveals more to us and to those who are listening who and what he is, what it means that he's the Messiah, but he gives a direct answer to the question of the people and the Pharisees. The people, I think, legitimately tripping up over this. He's supposed to be from Bethlehem. How is he from Galilee? And Jesus reminds them, to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, there is a prophecy about a very significant figure, one who will be called Mighty God, who will sit on the throne of David, who comes from Galilee. And answering the, the Pharisees, who are the self-appointed teachers, they of all people should know. Search and see, does any prophet come from scriptures? I am the light of the world. Does any prophet come from Galilee? I'm sorry. Well, yes, yes, at least one. At least one. Jesus is answering them. He's answering them. He's pointing them to this text. He is the fulfillment of this. So, so back, to, back to John 8. Now, notice the word is whoever follows him. 
And that's significant. This is an invitation text. This is another one of those invitation texts. He's already given one when he said, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here, the, the demand is not to believe, but to follow. And so this is giving us more explanation, more clarity. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to follow Jesus. That's the clear implication. Following Jesus and believing in Jesus and receiving Jesus are one and the same thing. We're getting more clarity on what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Whoever follows me. And that word follow makes a lot of sense with light. It helps us move in the direction of what Jesus means by light. In fact, I'll I'll tell you what I think it means. It means guidance. Light as in being able to see and act and move with understanding. Instead of blindly, that makes it become clear. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. If you've ever been trying to move about even a familiar place like your own house in a power outage, it's amazing how much we depend on sight to move, even in places we've moved a thousand and one times. Jesus is light such that those who follow him don't walk about in darkness. They can see, they can understand, they can interpret, they can rightly evaluate their surroundings, their environment, and live accordingly. That's, I believe, the understanding. We get that positively with the effect. Identity, text, effect, but we'll have the light of life. We'll have the light of life. And there's a similar movement from what Jesus said earlier about the living waters. There's a a bigger promise here than you might see. The, the, The pictures of people in darkness, people who don't even realize the desperate situation they're in. And if you stop and think about it, that makes sense. Biblically, even in John's gospel so far, we are all born abiding under God's wrath. And most people are ignorant of that, or at least are willfully ignorant of that. They're not even aware of their desperate situation. They're deluded with lies. They don't realize the plight they're in. And we live in a world where people wrestle with these big questions. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What's the purpose of life? What went wrong? How can what is wrong be made right? These are the big questions worldviews, philosophy tries to grapple with, and men are blind. Men men strive about in the darkness, and here Christ says he is light. I think what that means is Christ gives light to everything else. He's the light by which we can see and move and act. And it would be enough for him to say, the one who follows me will see. But notice the movement. It's not just you follow the light, but in following the light, you receive light. Similar to the, the rivers of living water that flow out of your heart, Jesus here says, the one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The promise is if you are a follower of Christ, not only do you have light to see, you have that light internally. We know with more clarity from the rest of the New Testament, he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, the new birth. But we can see, we can make sense of things. We can know what is right and what is wrong, what is wise and what is foolish, what pleases the Lord and what is wicked. And the world is in darkness. The world is in darkness, and Christ here offers light. Now, of course, it's that promise of light that can offend some. Turn back to chapter 3.
3.19. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus' invitation, his declaration that he is light, and there's a clear invitation, come, come follow Jesus, is only going to be attractive to people that want light. What John 3, 19 to 21 makes clear is there's a certain type of person, in fact, the majority of people, who are not interested in light. Most people, despite saying they want to know what's true and they want to know what life's about, don't. Because one of the things light does is it reveals sin. And it turns out that most people don't want light if the cost of that light is to be shown that they are wicked and corrupt. So Jesus is light, and he offers light to people who want to follow him. But what prevents people from following Jesus is precisely that he is light. I don't want to see that my evil imaginations are wicked. I don't want to see that my envy and my coveting is displeasing to God. I don't want to see that the thoughts and inclinations of my heart are only evil continually. I want to think much more highly of myself. And so Jesus here is offering light and life to those who want life and light. Jesus earlier said, if anyone's will is to do the Father's will, he will know if this teaching is from God. This is a similar concept. So Jesus here is another way of defining who and what he is. He is the one who helps explain life. He is the one who helps give meaning to life. Not helps, gives meaning to life. I'm sorry, that's too restrictive. Jesus gives meaning to life. Jesus defines what is true. All of reality is defined in light of him. And those who follow him not only get to see, but possess that light. That's, that's the promise Jesus is saying. It's to anyone in the world. But you've, you've got to want light, and you've got to choose you want to follow him. That's, that's his offer. That is what Jesus is promising. Which brings us then to a conclusion. So what? Jesus is claiming that he is the light come from Galilee of the nations, sent to shine upon the people who walk in deep darkness. Turn to John 12. Quickly, he'll, he'll pick up this metaphor again, and I think it becomes clear this is his meaning. In his last public utterance, before he goes private, in John 12, John 12, 35, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So light allows one to move and have activity, to see and rightly interact with life. And one of, one of the benefits of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ is now we can make sense of life. We can make sense of what we see around us. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the spiritual man interprets all things. We have the mind of Christ. We can see and understand what to make of things. The rest of the world walks in darkness. So that is Jesus' declaration. The rest of our passage centers around the dispute about his audacity in making it. The Pharisees don't like it. 
verse 13, we move from Jesus is the light of the world to Jesus' testimony and judgments are true. Let's read verses 13 through the end. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now it's remarkable here, and you may not have noticed this, but this is the first time in John's gospel that the Pharisees directly talked to Jesus. Now let me read a quote from a, a commentator who points this out. The Pharisees' response to Jesus signals a notable turning point in the gospel. Not because of what they say, but because they answer him at all. Not once have the Pharisees, except for Nicodemus, or the chief priests ever spoken one word to Jesus in this gospel. Not since chapter 2, when he drove the money changers from the temple, have the Jews done so. Everywhere else in the gospel up to this point, they have either plotted against him silently or spoken about him to each other. Even in his presence, now though, for the first time, the Pharisees confront him directly and speak to him face to face. And their statement is one of rejection. Rejection. The Pharisees reject Jesus' self-testimony. And there's a deep irony here. Just, just a moment before, what has Nicodemus said to them? Nicodemus has challenged whether or not it is right of them, according to the law of Moses, to judge Jesus without giving him a hearing. He appeals to the law. Look, look, back at, um, look back at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone with him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? How interested are they in legal protocol there? Not very. The response is childish. You from Galilee too. But now, oh, now they're very concerned with the protocol of the law. You're, you're only one witness, Jesus, and you need two or three witnesses, so your testimony doesn't stand. Notice, notice the hypocrisy of these people. They use the law as a convenience to get what they want. They set it aside when they want, and they pick it up in a very, very, I'm insistent upon it when they want. And we've just seen them shift from completely ignoring a rebuke from one of their own to now, well, actually, you're only giving one witness to yourself, Jesus. In fact, to the degree that they're saying this and trying to judge him, they're still even being hypocrites. Um, the same commentator writes, the flaw in the Pharisees' argument is that at least two witnesses are required for the conviction of offenders, but not for his acquittal. Because it has been long established that they are seeking Jesus' life, back as early as verse 1, verse 25 of chapter 7, they're trying to kill him. Precisely because of that, they're putting the burden of proof precisely where it does not belong. So even as they appeal to the law now, they're still doing it wrongly. Now, it's also possible they're quoting Jesus' own words back at him. Turn back to John 5. Jesus admits as much. He, they're, they're saying something he said earlier, and it is possible that they are quoting him or throwing his own words back at him. John 5 31, well, pick it up in 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not the will of him, not, not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. 
So it could be that they're aware that he said this, even though he spoke to the Jews in Jerusalem there. There's possibly some overlap. And it's also possible they're just directly referencing the law of Moses. Jesus will pick up the issue with the law of Moses shortly. So that's their objection. What you say can't be right. They don't need to deal with the fact that it's just proven there, there in fact, is a prophet coming from Galilee. That's not important. What matters is you just can't say that on your own. It's corrupt. This is the first thing they say. They reject his testimony. They reject it. To which Jesus insists that he is uniquely capable of self-testimony. This is another audacious claim. Jesus, on the one hand, acknowledges that under the law of Moses, he needs two or three witnesses. But in one sense, properly understood, Jesus needs no other witness. Look at what he says. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. And then his answer is interesting. Why is that, Jesus? For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I am from or where I'm going. So, So how does that explain how he can give testimony? Well, here's your blank. For he is from and going to the Father. He is from and going to the Father. This is partly why Jesus has been so insistent on arguing where he is from and whose son he is. Because properly understood, he's on a mission. He didn't send himself. He's sent. And as such, there's an implicit testimony of the Father. The Father has sent us his son. And so Jesus being present is, in fact, another witness. The author of Hebrews speaks of it this way, long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So Jesus is the revelation. Jesus is the witness. Jesus is the testimony of the father. Properly understood, his very presence here being sent and commissioned by his father is his father's witness. So that's why Jesus can say, I know where I'm from. I know where I'm going. I know my father has sent me. I know I'm on his business. I know I'm not standing alone. Therefore, everything I do and everything I say implicitly has his stamp on it. And therefore, in one sense, I absolutely can give testimony because his testimony is not alone. They're in many respects covering similar ground to the ground covered in John 5. Jesus insists that he is uniquely capable of self-testimony, for he is from and going to his Father. Go back to John 5. Look at 56 and 57. The testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works the Father has given me to do. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. So Jesus insists that he is from the Father. He has seen the Father fully. And he does nothing, plus or minus, except what he sees the Father doing. He is the image of the Father. He perfectly imitates the Father. He does nothing from himself. And therefore, rightly understood, everything Jesus does is a reflection of the Father. Therefore, everything Jesus says is not just Jesus saying it, but his Father saying it. That, that's the, the rationale, I believe, of Jesus here. Which is why, then, he says that they are ignorant of where he is from and where he is going. And again, this picks up perfectly with the discussion that's been going on in John. Look all the way back to chapter 7, verse 27. We know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, 
and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Then look down at verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. So Jesus has already addressed, they don't really know where he's from, and they don't know where he's going. And tied up in that knowledge, if you knew where he was from, and if you knew where he was going, then you would understand that all of his testimony implicitly has the Father bearing testimony as well. As well, they're ignorant. Which then shifts to Jesus insists that his judgments are true. Not only does Jesus claim here he can speak about himself because properly understood as being sent by the Father and going back to the Father, he bears the testimony of another. But now we shift from bearing witness to judging. Bearing witness to judging. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written, the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about you. About me, sorry, about me. Jesus insists that his judgments are true. Now here we get his rebuke, his rebuke. Nick, make no mistake, this is a rebuke. You judge according to the flesh. Now, he's already warned back in chapter 7, verse 24, not to judge by appearances, but to judge with right judgment. And here, he tells these lawyers, these teachers of the law, these Bible scholars, you judge according to the flesh. That's, that's, that's a bold charge. And again, this in John's gospel is where the... the the battle is met. The Pharisees directly reject him. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. To which Jesus responds, you're judging according to the flesh. This is an escalation in John's gospel. You judge according to the flesh. And we've seen that amply, haven't we? Starting with Nicodemus' own rebuke. You don't, we don't judge someone without, the, without giving them a hearing first, do we? But no, do they, do they judge righteously according to Scripture? No. They set it aside when it pleases them, and they pick it back up when it pleases them, and even then they can do it wrongly, trying to condemn Jesus. No, they judge according to the flesh. They'll evidence even further as we move on that they're judging according to the flesh. But that's Jesus' judgment on them. And what we see here is Jesus shifts from defendant to prosecutor. Jesus shifts from defendant to prosecutor. He now has charges to bring against them. So he says, I judge no one. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I who judge alone, but I and the Father who sent me. So what's going on here? We get his rebuke, and then we get his contrast, his contrast. I judge no one. Now, I think what he means here is I judge no one like you do. Clearly, Jesus judges. He just judged them. He just told them, you judge according to the flesh. That's a judgment. That's a, that's a rebuke. That's not a, it seems to me, that's a declaration. And even earlier, we saw back in chapter 5, right? Go back to chapter 5 in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just. So Jesus judges. He renders verdicts. Crinomai means to evaluate, to assess, to pronounce a verdict. That's the basic idea. 
So what does Jesus mean when he says, I don't judge? Well, I think he means I don't judge like you. Now, there is a sense, John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn or to judge the world. He's not fundamentally here to judge. Jesus is first and foremost here to give his life as a ransom for many, to die on the cross as our substitute. But the very nature of light is it reveals. The very nature of light is it, it makes things clear and evident. And Jesus, by his very presence and nature, polarizes and makes the opposition clear. There's a sense in which judgment's happening all around him as his light reveals darkness. And so here he speaks to the Pharisees. He rebukes them, tells them that they're judging according to the flesh, and says, I judge no one, yet even if I do judge. So I, I take that to mean I judge no one like you. He does not judge according to the flesh. He judges righteously, which brings point three, his unity, his unity. His rebuke, his contrast, his unity. And the reason why his judgments are true is he does not judge alone. It is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father, which I think, again, helps explain how he can bear witness about himself, because it's not just he bearing witness about himself alone, it's he and the Father. Jesus judges in concert with his Father who sent him. And again, this this assumes, and in many ways this is picking up the discussion of chapter 5. Go back to chapter 5. I'll remind you of Jesus' explanation of his relationship to the Father. So Jesus said to them, 519, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Greater works than these will he show him, so they may marvel For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So Jesus declares his sonship to the Father in functional categories. His Father reveals all that he does to the Son, and the Son, as a dutiful and attentive Son, pays attention, takes in all that he sees his Father doing, then imitates that. This, this would be a familiar word picture to anyone in, in Jesus' uh, first century world, where most often the children take on the work, the responsibilities of the parent. So the, the farmer shows his son how he plants the seed and how he tills the ground and how he takes up the weeds and the dutiful son pays attention and imitates. That's the word picture Jesus is using. It's a functional sonship he's describing. And here, when Jesus says the father shows him all that he's doing and the son does everything, what, what follows makes it clear. Jesus means absolutely everything, like raising the dead, like judging with eternal judgment, Jesus does everything he sees his father doing. Jesus reflects his father perfectly. That's, that's the sense in which he's using. And then on that basis, Jesus can say his judgments are true because he's not judging on his own. His, his judgments reflect the father's judgments. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the father who sent me. Jesus judges in concert with his father who sent him, He and his father both bear witness about himself. And here Jesus references Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.15. 
In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Now, when I said Jesus is now charging them, notice the shift. It takes two witnesses to bring a judgment. If you want to condemn someone, if you want to judge someone, on the basis of two or three witnesses, can you pronounce a guilty verdict? Deuteronomy 17.6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. When Jesus starts talking about two witnesses, he's the one bringing a charge here. He's the prosecutor. He's just told them they judge according to the flesh. He's about to make an even stronger judgment against them. He and his father both bear witness, which then brings us to Jesus pronounces his judgment on the Pharisees. Jesus pronounces his judgment on the Pharisees. The Pharisees respond to this, indicating they're completely not tracking, and also indicating the corruptness, even by their own standards, of their judgments. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? The reason I say it shows their corruption is if they think Jesus um, is saying, and it looks like they think he's saying, my father can tell you more, and they think he's talking about Joseph, well, shouldn't they know where he is? Shouldn't they have already talked to him? Shouldn't they have already verified these things? They say Jesus is from Galilee. They don't know where his father is. In other words, they actually haven't done their diligence. They think he's talking about earthly parentage. And Jesus makes this indication the basis of his more devastating judgment against them. They said to him, where is your father? It was right over their head. Jesus says to them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. What's Jesus saying here? They do not know Jesus or his father. That, that's, that's a very strong statement. He said something similar to the Jews in John 5. He's telling the Pharisees, these scholars of the law, these zeal, these zealous leaders of Israel's religion, they don't know the God they claim to worship. That's a bold statement. They don't know the Father. They don't know Yahweh. They don't know the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. They don't know the one who revealed himself at Sinai. They don't know the one, the Lord God Almighty. How, how can he make that judgment? Because to know Jesus is to know the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. Let me, let me use an example that might help make sense. Imagine a father who has a son who looks virtually just like him. I'm sure you know people who've had children who look so much like their parents. Jesus looks like his father perfectly, but just we'll use the analogy of someone who undeniably looks like his father. Jesus comes to, as this son, the people who claim to know and love his father. And the argument is, if you knew my father, you'd recognize me, but they don't recognize him. They hate him. Well, then clearly you don't know my father. That, that's the logic. In fact, turn over to, to Luke 20. Jesus tells a parable similar to this. And, and again, while you're turning here, there, there is no knowing God without knowing Jesus. There is no multiple ways get you to God. Jesus insists exclusive access to the Father. 
And if someone says they know God, the proof test of that is what do you do with Jesus? And if they don't say, I worship him, they don't know the Father. Luke 20, verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, and they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give their vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Jesus is condemning the religious leaders of his day with the judgment, you don't know God, you scholars of the law, you who recite the law of Moses, you who know its ins and outs, you who could probably recite most of it. And the proof that you don't know the Father is you don't know Jesus. That is a bold Christological claim. And Jesus is condemning them. He is the judge. He's turned the tables. It's no longer them sitting in judgment on him, but him sitting in judgment on them. I'll read one more quote from this commentator. To Jesus himself, of course, it's a matter of establishing not his own innocence, but the guilt of his accusers. And for this purpose, two witnesses are quite sufficient. He sees himself not as the defendant, but alongside the father as judge. And he hands down an immediate verdict. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. He is telling the Pharisees, just as he told those in Jerusalem a chapter earlier, that they do not know God. Beyond that, he is telling them that the two testimonies of which he has just spoken, his own and his father's, are both wrapped up in his own testimony. In short, his testimony is self-authenticating. He is simply repeating what he said a few verses earlier. Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I come from and where I I am going. Not Jesus, but his accusers stand condemned. That is Jesus' judgment. Which brings us finally to the summary statement closing out this chunk of text. John tells us these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Just want to point out two things before we sing our closing song. One, John now makes it clear that this first interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, where they reject him and he condemns them, happens in public. This happened in the temple, in the treasury, where Jesus is teaching the people. So you better believe this is an escalation. The first time the Pharisees as a group speak to Jesus, they reject him, and he in turn condemns them of not knowing his father or him. And the public sees this. The public hears this, which I think is why John has to say no one arrested him. Because you can imagine the Pharisees have already sent guards out to arrest him. The people have already tried to arrest him. There'd be ample cause for it. 
Jesus condemned the Pharisees publicly, but point to divine sovereignty protected him. And again, in John's gospel, the cross is not a mistake. It's not an accident. Jesus is doing his Father's will. His Father's sovereign protection guards him until his hour comes. Jesus is absolutely fearless. He takes on the Pharisees so boldly, so courageously. And so I'll just, as we close, call you to consider his invitation. Jesus is the light that gives life. Jesus is inviting all of us, every one of us, to follow him and promises to those who will, not only will they see, but they will have the light inside of them. They will have the life and the life that is light. I hope and trust you are those who have bowed the knee to King Jesus, who love his light, have come to him and follow him. Let's stand. I'll call the worship team up and we have a word of prayer and we'll sing. Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant us faith to believe that we may see the light of life and in seeing live and follow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.